Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for being here. Um, would you help me thank the folks who brought dinner this evening? Um, it looks like, uh, I think, pretty good through next week, though the sign-up is there. Again, if, you, if you'd like to do that and take advantage of that, um, I think, I don't know, I'd say good news. I won't be with you next week. Um, we'll be out of town. So the, the good news for you is that Michael gets to teach, and uh, that, that will be well done, of course. So um, we will miss you. I noticed two of my favorite soups are happening next week. So if you, if you think about it, little to-go cups in the refrigerator would be appreciated. Tonight we, um, we move on to the next great end of the church, the preservation of the truth which is a mouthful, and I think in some ways this may be the most difficult of the great ends to deal with. Um, preservation is maybe not the best word, and, and we'll discuss that later. It essentially means keeping or maintaining. Truth is a fairly straightforward word. Um, to, for something to be true means it's credible, it's factual, it's tested. Biblically, the word means uh, uncovered or revealed. The Greek word for truth is literally the, the A or the A, which negates a word, and it means hidden. So literally, it means not hidden or, or obvious, unconcealed. Um, interestingly enough, it is the smallest word in the phrase that causes the most issues, the truth. Preservation of truth would be okay. Preservation of the truth has caused some problems. And that's a fairly recent development. We live in an era that some people call postmodernism, meaning after modernism. I, I struggle with that a little bit because it always seems to me kind of arrogant to name an era that you're in. I think naming probably belongs to the people who come later. But there are lots of opinions about what postmodernism means and what it doesn't mean. But one of the more agreed upon, probably one of the consensus items of postmodernism is what's called a denial or the breakdown of the, and, and I'm sorry to use this language jargon, but meta-narrative. In other words, the, the big story. The idea is that we live in an era where truth is considered to be personal truth. So there's no connecting story that's true for everyone. There's not a meta-narrative that overarches everybody. It's just my truth. It's the micro-narrative. My own story. So truth is considered personal and not universal. It's true for me. It may not be true for you. And our culture struggles with the idea of something that is universally true. Read an article recently that said there are really in our, in our day four sources of authority. Science. Cultural norms. Subjective feelings. And revelation or discovered truth revealed truth this is the main way we talk about christian truth as revealed truth but really of those four science cultural norms subjective feelings and revelation three i would say in postmodernism are in decline and personal subjective feelings is on the rise that is in some ways the majority of the conversation when we discuss Truth. It reigns supreme. When I served in Texas, had a very 
memorable conversation. The young woman had been visiting our church, and you know, and this was 20 years ago. She'd been visiting the congregation. She came in to, to talk more. She was a single mom, had a, a son, and wanted to explore getting him back baptized. So we talked for a while about where she was at and her beliefs. And she said, well, uh, I'm a Christian. I'm also a Wiccan. Anybody know about Wiccans? So Wiccans are kind of Celtic witchcraft, not in the big pointy hat and and pointed nose kind of thing, riding a broom, but like earth magic. And, and, and she had no reservation saying both of those things are true for me. I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm a witch. And by the way, the third one, the, so those two were surprising. The third one was even more surprising. She said, I'm also a hardcore Republican. And, and trying to get trying to get those three things on the same plate was for me really difficult. And so we, we talked for a moment. I said, well, why? You know, what are you thinking? What? Having your boy baptized? I, I mean, are you? And she said, well, I just think community is important. I think it's important that he belongs somewhere. So for her, the idea of baptism wasn't really an extension of what was true. It, it was a thing that would help his story, help his narrative. And um, as strange as it sounds, we live in this area era where I think people are more and more comfortable holding truths together for themselves that have typically not gone together so people could say i'm a christian buddhist well historically that that doesn't work um i'm i'm a presbyterian baptist historically no you're not <laughs> um but we we see this all the time um my personal truth is is the truth. And society is less and less convinced that there's anything that's true for everyone. When I was in seminary, I did, I did an internship year. I came back, and so I sat in with students who were largely the class behind me, some of whom I hadn't known because I had been on the, the intern year. And we were in a preaching class. And, and by then, I began to get some sense of uh, of the difficulty of preaching. I'd had an opportunity to preach during the internship. I worked with a good preacher who I, I think helped me a lot. But some of what I did was just experience the reality of sitting in a congregation. So, in, in other words, I, I had kind of learned that when you step up to the pulpit, you know, th there's the couple whose son is sick. There's the woman who just found out she had cancer. There's the woman whose family's home for the weekend and everybody's happy. There's the people who are struggling with their young child. There, and the idea that you could put faces on some of these things that were happening in the congregation and the struggle to work on a sermon and think, what word could I possibly offer that would be true for them? That... What could you possibly say that would have something to offer 
those various people. Um, I think it was Emily Dickinson one time who said, um, what can you preach that wouldn't enrage hearers with its triviality? In other words, how do you find a word that speaks to these people in all these various differences, different situations in life? And and I was having that conversation with uh, with the um, graduate assistant who helped with the preaching class, and she said, well, what if you don't accept anything as universally true? What if I think there's nothing that's universally true? And And the question, the thing I remember thinking is, well, then what do you preach? Because if, if all I have to preach is, is my, my micro story, my personal truth, I don't have much to offer you. I, I, that's pretty thin. Um, so the bold claim of the church is that anything is really true for everyone. That there is something that is universally true. This thing that we are preserving is true for everyone. It is a challenging time to preserve the truth. Lots of conversation about truth, not a lot of acceptance of the truth, the idea of truth. So first of all, we have to consider what is it that we're preserving. When we say the truth, what do we mean? And when Christians use the word truth, we often get this confused because we ultimately are not talking about a proposition, a doctrine, or an idea. We mean Jesus. When we say we are seeking to preserve the truth, we mean exclusively the person of Jesus. Not things about Jesus, but Jesus himself. For Christians, the truth is a person. Jesus Christ is the truth, the fulfillment and embodiment of what is true, not just because we say so, but because he is. In other words, not just for me. Jesus isn't just true for Clint the Presbyterian in Iowa. Jesus is true. And our job is to try and uncover the ways in which Jesus is true. And this matters because so often when Christians argue with people, we argue over propositions. And we think of keeping truth as fighting about doctrines and convincing people of ideas and proving that our way of thinking is the right way of thinking. But reality, the task of the church is only the extension of keeping the truth of Christ. It is a person that we present to the world. It is not an idea. It is not a doctrine that we have to offer. The gospel is not about a doctrine, but about the person of Jesus Christ. When we talk truth in church, we have to mean Jesus first. So when we argue about things like, is the Bible true? Is it factual? Is there science in it? it that's not unimportant, but it's secondary. And, and I would say vastly secondary um, and so often we let those kind of arguments become primary. When somebody wants to argue with us about whether the Bible is true, Christians don't need to be... Our, our task is not to prove to anyone the Bible is true. Our task is to present the one who is true, 
Jesus Christ. And let the Bible point to that truth. The, the Bible is just a sign, just an arrow that points us toward real truth. Um, so when we say true, we shouldn't mean true for me, but we also shouldn't mean doctrine. Though we all should know Jesus personally, and doctrine is good, that's not what we mean. If you know, and, and Michael will like this, uh, there's this wonderful scene. We, we argue about the gospel sometimes. Michael's a big Gospel of John fan, and I have to admit, John has his moments. And one of them, <laughs> one of them is Jesus is standing before Pilate. This is in the crucifixion narrative. And Pilate asks, you know, are you a king? And Jesus says, I came to testify to the truth. And there's this wonderful, beautiful response. Um, Pilate says, truth? What is truth? Question mark. And then he tries to get Jesus off the hook with the crowd, but he can't. And, and what's beautiful about that scene is that Pilate knows political truth. And Pilate knows the truth of power. But the great irony of that scene is the truth is literally standing before him. And he doesn't know it. He doesn't get what is truth is really who is truth. And um, it, it's, one of John, I, it's one of John's masterpieces. He has a couple. And I would say that's one of them. And, and that's the truth that the church proclaims, that's the truth that we live under, that's the truth that we offer the world, the one who is the truth, the one who is the, the way and the life. Um, again, doctrine matters, but doctrine is an extension of what is true about Jesus, who is himself the truth. And ultimately, that's when we talk about preserving the truth, which we will in a minute, that's what we mean. So let me stop there. Comments, questions, observations? Did you baptize that child? Uh, no. Uh, I don't, we didn't. Um, as we talked, she was going to find it difficult to affirm the things that you need to affirm when you stand up and present your child to be baptized. Um, yeah. No, she didn't. So how do we know truth beyond Scripture? And say, absent Scripture, how do I know truth? Um, so in the Reformed tradition, one of the ways we've referred to Scripture is the unique and authoritative witness to Jesus Christ. So um, we have proclaimed historically that the most credible source we have to discover the truth of Christ is the Scripture. That it points us to truth, it, uh, it reveals truth to us in a way that nothing else does. In, in a way that uh, other books do. I, I, have a, I have a friend who served as an associate pastor in a church where the pastor um, used for the morning reading for their sermon, Dr. Seuss. Can't do it. You, you cannot do it. Uh, it it's stupid. You, I mean, you want to quote Dr. Seuss in your sermon? Great. You cannot stand there and read from the pulpit Dr. Seuss as if that's God's living word to you today. C cannot do it. Um, 
Yeah, you can't. You just can't. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little opinionated about that. Um, yeah, mind-boggling. Um, so we do say about the scriptures, Mike, that that they are true in a way that we don't talk about other written materials. But again, it, it is not because it, it is not because they by themselves stand alone but because they are the best witness to, we have to what God has done and to the, the truth that is Christ. Does that make sense? No. <laughs> yeah, it kind of does. Okay. But you're emphatic about saying, well, the scriptures are way secondary to the truth. I, I don't doubt that. I mean, I think you're absolutely right on. But how in absence of that? I mean, it has to testify to him. Well, and, and we don't, and, and I would say we don't function in absence of the scripture. In no way, shape, or form are we in absence. But the emphatic yeah. scripture off, you know, it's so secondary or, you know, if it no, um, I'm sorry if I, if, if I gave that impression, then I was, I, that's, that's wrong. That's not, that's not at all. Um, I, I would say that, the scripture is the best source of revelation that we have about Jesus, who is the truth. Um, of, of all the ways we can uncover the truth of Christ, scripture is the best. It's the most reliable. The, it, it is the most trusted. It, it is revelation. But what that means is, and, and this is, I think, quite frankly, where it gets difficult. That Scripture is not the highest revelation we've been given by God. Christ is. And so when we use Scripture, when you hear someone use Scripture to teach something that's not in keeping with Christ, then it's not... Then, then it that's a it's a disservice. It's not it's a so when when someone uses the scripture to teach hate and separation and uh, judgment and whatever it is, we have to be very cautious because ultimately we say that that does not reflect the truth of the person in, of Christ who's revealed in scripture. Does, does that help? Yeah, yeah, it really does. Okay. So what's Paul saying in Romans when he says no one no one has an excuse? But a lot of folks didn't have scripture and they didn't they didn't know him or they didn't know him. So what what's Paul saying to us? When he says you therefore have no excuse because you judge others and you're guilty of the sin. Right. Yeah. So I, I would argue that that comes at a point where Paul is trying to teach us our need for grace. And particularly to a culture that trusted works righteousness, if we could use that label broadly, and the following of the law, Paul is saying, no, you are just as guilty. And he does it masterfully. He says, you know, look at them. They're sinners. They're sinners. And then he says, now look at you. You're one too. And you go, oh, dang, got me. <laughs> and, and, and once he's got us... Once he's got us, then he's ready to say, now let me tell you what it means that you're all sinners. All of you. Not just them, but us. Here's why we need Christ. Um, 
So I yes, and one of the one of the primary things I think that Scripture does is its role is is it convicts us. When we look at the Scripture and we see Christ reflected in it, we see how far we fall from that, and it, it helps turn us back to our need to be filled. Yeah, Jan. The Holy Spirit is uh, the arbitrator of truth, the advocate. The, the Holy Spirit, I think, is the mechanism. I, check me here, Michael. I, would, I think I could say the Holy Spirit is the mechanism by which the revelation happens. In, in other words, when truth is revealed to us, that is the work of God's Spirit. It, it's, not, it's not our ability to decode it. It's not... It is God at work through the Spirit to uncover, to, to reveal truth. Uh, because I think scripturally the highest truth is, is not something we attain, but something we discover, something that is shown to us. Is that fair? Reverend Gwecki? <laughs> he thinks... Yeah. Yeah, and and what we've said is there's a congruence, there's an agreement that the Spirit won't tell us something that is not in keeping with Christ, and and God won't do something that is um, contrary to His nature. Yes, absolutely. There that there is unity in the three. Mm-hmm. So again, it, I guess, I mean, it's a global Christian part of the country, so, you know, I guess he's saying, or I guess they're saying, that true knowledge, true education is not going to fly in the face of, of God's revelation either. I'm not sure. I, I go round and round on that one, but I think it's an interesting thing. So I, I think Presbyterians have been strong in, in that, Phyllis. My pastor in, in a very... Um, much simpler way used to say that Christians never need to be afraid of truth. All truth is God's truth. So Christians need not fear discoveries about the world because those are simultaneously discoveries. So so Presbyterians and science have not, we've generally been okay. Now, we may come from a different place, but but a Presbyterian Christian is able to say, I'm not afraid of scientific discovery because it teaches me something about the world God made and how and and how it works. And so that there's no and at our best, I think we've not been too afraid of of education. Yeah, Michael. Maybe I think it's congruent with what you're saying, but I, I think one way to conceive of the Holy Spirit in that relationship is instead of thinking of it as as the channel, you, you think of it as as the presence. So so Christian doctrine is that God lives in you. So so the idea of revelation isn't just revelation outside of us. It's actually revelation also within us, right? That that God exists 
And, and so therefore, the, the point I'm trying to make is, I think, to, to, to assign any member of the Trinity that is to take away from the fact that God is active in different ways. So, so, so Jesus is the representation of God, yet, and, and, and uh, Jesus says, if, uh, uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? But, but realistically, we believe that Christ lives in us by the power of the Spirit. So therefore, God's revelatory work is not just outside of us, it's actually also within us. Yeah. So, so sure. it, it, it's to say that what Christ's presence in us by the work of the Spirit is also revelatory, which is another way of saying that this the Spirit is revelatory. But I, I, do you get the point of trying? Instead of thinking of it mechanically, which which gives the idea of like a like a connector, it, it's 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 more more atmospheric that's not helpful well i think i i mean i'm tell me if i'm off track here but i i think the idea is whatever whatever if if we could talk about the trinity as individuals whatever one does all do and so if i understand you correctly i i think i would agree 100 percent that what the spirit does in us is the work of christ in us and vice versa. And, and so when we, for, for instance, when we read scripture or when we hear sermon or when we worship and something happens in us, that that is simultaneously a, a discovery of Christ and an uncovering by the work of the Spirit to help us point to Christ. Is that fair? Yeah, I think a, a maybe a more succinct summary. Instead of thinking of revelation as something that happens between you and God, you think of revelation as something that happens in all contexts by God. And the Spirit does that. Right? Yeah, we can follow up on that one later. <laughs> I, I mean, that, I, I think that's how you would read Calvin, talking about knowledge of self and knowledge of God. And, the, and Calvin's going to say spirit lives in the middle of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, obviously we want to be careful as talking about, about spirit as a bridge. And, and yet, when we discover, when truth is uncovered, it is, it is the action of God, it is the power of spirit, it is the presence of Christ. It is all of those things, I think, simultaneously so Jan that was a little detour <laughs> yeah I, I think Trinity takes us very quickly to the outer edges of our comprehension Though I I don't want to say it's a metaphor or an analogy. I mean we, it's it's not an example. It, there is it is a real doctrine. It is a real belief of how God is and who God is. But quickly, it's beyond our ability, I think, to process. Okay, then the the last thing and I. I'm going to pick at the great end of the church a little bit. Um, 
I think I take some issues with the word preservation. So when I was a kid, my aunt had a storm cellar that was also the fruit cellar. And once in a while, I'd get to help. And so if you've done that business, you, you know, um, by the way, have everybody done that? Like eating fruit out of the canning jar and how awesome it is? Well, you know why it's awesome? It's like 22 pounds of sugar goes in it when you're doing the fruit. So then it would go in these jars, and the jars would just sit down in the cellar. And then whenever you wanted, you'd open, and you'd have peaches, or you'd have what you know, whatever. And it was outstanding. But preserve, I, I would almost argue the word preserve is difficult because it, it implies that you're keeping something old. That you're, you're, you're preserving something, you're not adding to it, you're keeping it. Keeping it fresh is, is, that's not bad. But that idea implies that truth is sort of static and passed down from generation to generation, which is half of the story. But we have to add to that this idea that the truth of Jesus is, is revealed truth. It is uncovered discovery. You know, Jesus tells Peter after he tells, he says, who do the people say I am? Peter says, they're this, this. And he says, who do you think? He says, you're the Messiah. And, and Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father in heaven. In other words, you didn't figure this out on your own. God has uncovered a truth for you. The truth of who I am. And because revelation is a divine gift, there's a sense in which we can talk about truth as always new. Now that doesn't mean Christ changes. The, the truth is the truth and always has been. As it, true yesterday, as today, as tomorrow. But each generation discovers new things about what it means that Jesus is true. About what it means to call Jesus Lord. So it's not only preservation. I think I would argue that there's also some progression. The, the church is never done uncovering the truth or what the truth means because we never get to the end of it. And we don't just keep it. We expand it, or at least it expands as we encounter it. God reveals new things to us, in some cases, things that previous generations missed. And, and it's less that there's new truth or that truth changes, and more that we never have all the truth of who Jesus is. So in our day, we're asking questions about what does it mean that Jesus is true in this day and age? And in some senses, those questions weren't asked in the past. We now look at something like racial equality with a new truth that some of our ancestors missed. They were blinded to it. It was true then. They didn't know it. We know a little more about the truth of it because we've come, we've made some progress. We've taken, we've added to the conversation. And um, I think the power in that is never can the church say 
We got it figured out. Now all we got to do is put it in a jar and lock it in the cellar, get it out and throw it at people when we need it. It, it, We're never done uncovering truth. God is never done revealing truth to us. And that truth may change circumstantially. It doesn't change in its essence, but it makes our understanding of it changes. The nuance changes. We, we grow. And um, I, I think that's the beauty of it. On my computer, I keep a, a few random pieces of paper. One of them that I keep is a very short prayer that comes from the Church of Kenya. And it says this, From cowardice that dares not face the truth, from laziness contented with half the truth, and from arrogance that thinks it knows all the truth, O oh God, deliver us. So what are the mistakes we make? Ignoring the truth, being settling for partially true, or thinking we have all the truth. I think um, I'm indebted to the Church of Kenya because that I, I see in that so much wisdom. Um, from a cowardice that won't follow Christ, from a laziness that wants to follow Christ as I frame him, and from an arrogance that thinks I know all of Christ. Oh God, deliver me. Oh God, deliver us. As we seek to live out this mission of preserving the truth, we do not lock the church down to its past, but we link the church inseparably, inseparably to Jesus Christ, who is the truth that sets us free, shows us the way, and gives us life. And we preserve the truth by following him more so than by our doctrine and our ideas and even our teachings, we preserve truth by following Jesus. And as we do, we are in turn preserved by the truth. We are kept by the truth. The truth protects, guides, shepherds, and leads the church as we follow Christ because he is the truth. And so um, I, I think... If, if I had, you know, the magic pen, I might fiddle with the word preserve a little bit. I, it's, it, it's too easy to get it. I think it's too easy to be misguided by the word preserve. Um, seeking truth, sharing truth. I don't know what else I'd say. I, I shouldn't criticize. It's good language, but it's a little dated in my ears. And I'd argue, I think I'd argue that preserve comes from a time in which the church was more confident about the truth that it thought it had than we are right now. So preservation of the saints is the, the idea that, that God protects, that God keeps. And, and by the way, when it says saints, it means you. Um, we, that's what we mean by it, Presbyterians. So when we say preservation of the saints, that's really the idea of something that God does. And, and maybe the primary difference would be that in the great ends, we're talking about something the church tries to do. And, and preserve is not a bad word. I mean, we do things like pass down the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer. We, we, we do preserve, but we have to acknowledge that in that we're, we're always trying to make room for what God might uncover that is new to us not new truth but new to us contextual in the sense that we hear it in a new way um, let me stop there comments questions I'd like to-
Yes. Truth is steadfast. Now, we go from there, and perhaps we haven't discovered all the dimensions of truth. And that's where we kind of launch out and get a broader perspective. But the fundamental truth is steadfast. And I think we have to be careful when people do launch out and start expanding on that, that it isn't just opinion, mm -hmm. that it still remains true. Yeah. Sure. That's why we veered left and we veered right. That not only appears in our churches, I think it all also appears in our country yeah. and in the world. Is this lack of steadfastness to the truth? And I, I think I think the other uh, personal truths to me are really truly when you take the veil away are opinions. A personal truth to me is probably an yeah. Mixed in that could be the truth, but part of it is not the truth, or could be not the truth. Well, and and yeah, absolutely well said. And we, I do think we live in an era that that easily substitutes my truth for for truth, the truth. So if it's true for me, it, it is true. And and at my worst, I might even argue then it's probably true for you too because it's true for me. And it's the wrong place to start. Christians have to remember that when we tell the world we know the truth, we're talking about a person, not an idea. When, when we say we have truth to offer, we're not, saying, we're not talking about what we know, we're talking about who we know. And, and I think that is a, is a vital distinction when we have conversations about what is true with the world. That we're not arguing opinions, we're trying to introduce Christ. Michael. An illustration of your point, I think, is in the ancient world, there were lots of movements like Stoicism, right? And there were different spokespeople for the movement. It's striking that the early Christians were it was a slanderous term. It was intended to be an insult. They were called Christian, little Christs. There, there, was no, there was no confusing that they were trying to be like Jesus. So just to separate between the idea of a movement and people who were defined by the person, early Christians, even their opponents, understood them to be about Jesus, about that, that that's what they were about. Yeah, very good. Yeah, they weren't Epicureans. They weren't Stoics. They were... Jesus people. Uh, that's, that's helpful. It's good. Anything else? All right. Well, thank you all for your time. Again, thanks to those who uh, fed us this evening. We appreciate it. Um, have a good evening and, and a good week.